John chapter 12, verse 35. Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me, does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Thanks, Vanessa. Uh, so good to see you and the family. And it's interesting, isn't it? Even for the teachers, homeschooling is a tough gig. Uh, so we wish all you well, all you parents out there who are becoming homeschool teachers at the moment. Now, uh, we're constantly hearing, aren't we? Uh, everywhere we turn on the news, the internet, social media, we're constantly hearing about uh, ways to respond to the coronavirus. You know, and it, st it started out with uh, new ways of greeting one another. You know, out, uh, the hugs and the handshakes, they're out. Uh, and so now we've got the foot tap, the elbow tap, but even more, you know, here, here are some of the uh, new ways of greeting one another. Uh, we're hearing what we can do to flatten the curve. Uh, and one of the things is we've just got to not be complacent, not panic at the same time, but be careful, uh, be thoughtful. Uh, companies are rebranding themselves in light of social media. So, you know, you can see the McDonald's arches have sort of stepped apart from each other. Colonel Sanders is wearing a face mask. You know, the Tokyo Olympic rings have sort of uh, spread out a little bit and it should now say 2021 on there. And stock markets around the world are feeling the pinch. And as stocks go into the decline, although there are two companies in particular that have really uh, been surging of late, can you guess what they are? So can you guess what companies have actually benefited from the coronavirus? Two in particular that I'm aware of, uh, one is Zoom video conference technology. Uh, it's really going through a surge at the moment. And the other is Netflix, you know, the home video streaming. Uh, so those two have sort of uh, gone uh, on the upward trajectory. 
Uh, so we're constantly hearing advice about how to cope socially, physically, in terms of hygiene, uh, how to think about it financially, responding to the coronavirus. But what I want to do this morning is think about how do you respond spiritually to the coronavirus? And as far as I'm concerned, as far as God's concerned, that's the most important question of all. What do we need to learn? How do we need to respond in terms of our relationship with God to what is going on in the world around us? Now, here at the Lakes, as Ruth said, we've been working our way through John's Gospel. Today, we come to John 12. Uh, and today is Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem. It was five days before he would be crucified, uh, five or six days. Uh, he entered Jerusalem. There was, you know, the palm branches. Everyone was welcoming the king uh, who had come to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and what happens in John 12, towards the end of John 12, John looks back over the course of Jesus' ministry because uh, his public ministry to Israel is now over. And John kind of does a little bit of a wrap-up so throughout John's gospel, John has given us seven signs, seven miraculous signs that Jesus had been doing. He'd, he'd done far more than these seven, but John hones in on these seven, you know, changing water to wine, a number of healings, uh, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, and the final, the big one that we had in chapter 11 raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And the question is, how should people have responded to those signs? You know, as people saw those things with their own eyes, as they experienced the miraculous power of Jesus, how should they have responded? Now, John unpacks that for us. So you come on to John chapter 20. And what happens in John 20? Jesus has died. He's risen again. He's now appearing to his disciples, to the 12. But Thomas hasn't yet seen Jesus. And Thomas says, look, unless I see the, the holes in his hands, unless I see the wound in his side, then I will not believe. And Jesus appears there before him. He eats and drinks with them. And he says, Thomas, look, feel the hole in my hand. Feel my side. And Thomas falls down in worship and he says, Jesus, my Lord and my God. And what John goes on to say is uh, it's John chapter 20, verse 30. John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, many other miraculous signs, which are not recorded in this book, but these ones are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Do you see what the miracles of Jesus should have done? They should have compelled people to believe in him, to believe that God's Son, the Messiah, has come amongst us, uh, and he is doing the, the amazing things that God said his Messiah would do. And it should have it compelled people to believe in him, to trust in him, to recognize him as the saviour, and to receive eternal life and hope and forgiveness and joy through him. Now, that's how they should have responded. But what John 12 shows us 
is the tragedy of how many of them did in fact respond. And I want to pick it up in John chapter 12, verse 27. And it says this, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Now, the key words I want to pick up on are those two words, would not. They would not. Many people refused to believe in Jesus. They'd seen all these incredible things he'd been doing. They had all the Old Testament scriptures which pointed towards the Messiah and the miracles that he would do. It was there so clearly before them. They'd just seen a man raised from the dead after four days. But still, many people refused to believe. And you ask the question, why? Why is it? Like if, if you see so clearly portrayed before you the power of Jesus, why would many people refuse to believe? Well, John tells us with the religious leaders, there were a whole lot of stuff going on. They, were, um, they loved the power that they had. They loved their popularity, the esteem they had. So they were jealous and they were um, prideful and arrogant. Uh, and so they didn't want Jesus to come and take the spotlight from them. We know Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, it was greed, at least in part, that motivated him to betray Jesus. We know that for many in the crowds, fear was a big motivator. But in John chapter 12, verse 38, John helps us understand this unbelief by quoting two scriptures, uh, by quoting two passages from Isaiah, and both of them come six or 700 years before the Lord Jesus. So in verse 38, John quotes Isaiah 53. And it says, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Then in verse 40, he quotes Isaiah chapter 6. God has hardened, so God has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Now, here's the point. What John is to helping us to see is this. God predicted, even planned the rejection of Jesus. Uh, it's actually hard to get your head around, but God not only predicted, but he also planned the rejection of Jesus. I want to pick it up from Isaiah 53. It's one of the most powerful, beautiful, profound, and tragic passages in the whole Bible. Uh, so I've got 600 BC there on the screen, possibly even 700 BC, 700 years before Jesus. But verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. So it's talking about God's Messiah coming to our world. And instead of being embraced, he was despised and rejected, a man of suffering. Verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus died in our place as our substitute, bearing our sin. And verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, 
on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. A few years ago, I did a little excursion out to Jillaby, uh, out to one of the goat farms out there. Uh, here it is. Uh, and I wanted to demonstrate sacrifice, uh, animal sacrifice. So don't worry, it doesn't get uh, too dramatic. But uh, I had to catch the goat first. So uh, here I am running across the paddock. If you cut to the next slide, there, there we are. Uh, running across the paddock, trying to catch one of the goats. Uh, one of the goat herders actually brought a goat to me, uh, and so here I am. And so this is what the um, this is what the, so when a person brought an animal for sacrifice to the temple, the symbolism was that they, they would lay their hands on the animal, say on the goat in this case, and it was like my sin, my guilt is being transferred onto this animal. And then when the animal was killed, it was like that animal died bearing my sin. And what Isaiah 53 verse 6 is saying is that the Lord has laid on Jesus. God has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Jesus died bearing our sin. And verse 10 says it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. So God predicted, even planned the rejection of Jesus. Now that in no way, um, that in no way absolves those who were involved of responsibility. Yes, they were guilty. Uh, the religious leaders and their jealousy, their pride, their arrogance, Judas and his greed, uh, the people who just stayed silent and didn't speak up, they all played a part and they were guilty. But nevertheless, this was God's plan. God not only predicted, but he planned the rejection of Jesus to accomplish his purposes. So many people refused to believe but secondly, even amongst those who did believe, many refused to testify. And I'm picking up in verse 42. Yet at the same time, many, even amongst the leaders, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Can you see that they're afraid? They're actually more afraid of what other people might think and say and do than what God thinks. Uh, and so as a result, they're afraid to openly acknowledge Jesus as King, as Messiah and Saviour. Now, a few years ago here in Australia, uh, the McCrindle researchers did a big survey of Aussie attitudes towards Jesus and Christianity. And they found that it was sort of broken up in, you know, roughly in thirds. You know, so a third of Australians are happy to say, yes, I'm a Christian. A third are neutral. And a third would say, no, I'm opposed to Christianity. Uh, but as you, look at those, as you look at that graph and those figures, I wonder how many of those people who are neutral or how many people who are opposed, I wonder how many have actually ever taken the time to investigate the evidence for Jesus. Uh, my experience is that I talk to a lot of people who are not interested in Christianity, and they say, 
Uh, well, no, I've never actually checked out the evidence. So they've kind of dismissed Jesus or even uh, sort of opposed him without ever checking out for themselves what he said and did, the historical evidence. So in a few weeks' time, we're running this course called Life, and we'd love to invite you to come and be part of that. Uh, it, it'll run Tuesday or Wednesday night. Uh, I'll, I'll give some talks. Uh, you can sit there with people in your own lounge room, your household, or you can join an online kind of discussion group. But we've, we'd love you to take this opportunity that you know, the shutdown gives us to investigate the claims of Jesus, to actually wrestle with who is Jesus and what does it mean for my life. So come back to the survey. Um, so you've got some people have dismissed Jesus without ever checking out the evidence. I wonder how many Australians have checked out the evidence but still refuse to believe. Because that, that was what was happening in Jesus' time. Uh, and I do see that happening amongst Aussies. I, I think a lot of Aussies suspect that the, the, Jesus is the truth. A lot of Aussies suspect that Jesus is God's king, but it's kind of like it, it doesn't suit me. You know, I, I'd rather live life my own way. Uh, I don't want someone else to be king over me. And so sadly, even though most Aussies have a sense that Jesus is the real deal, a lot of people have dismissed him in spite of the evidence. Uh, and finally, what about... What would you say about Aussies in terms of the fear factor? Um, people who believe in Jesus. wonder how many Aussies believe in Jesus but are afraid of what their friends might think or afraid of you know, the impact that it might have on their family life. Uh, even amongst people who say, I am Christian, it's one thing to tick on a census form or a survey and say, I'm a Christian. But it's another thing when, when the pressure's on in a social situation. Uh, and, you know, you're feeling the heat for following Jesus, it's very easy at that point to kind of give way to fear and refuse to testify. And that's exactly what happened in Jesus' day. But I just want to plead with all of you that following Jesus is the way to go. Uh, yes, I understand the fears. I understand a whole lot of motives that are going on inside of us. But my experience and the experience of millions of people around the world is that following Jesus as king, whilst, whilst he is our king, whilst he does set the rules for our lives, it's the good life. He brings us into life to the full, a life of forgiveness and hope, a life of meaning, a life of love, love from God, love from others, uh, I just want to say my experience and so many others' experiences, put aside those fears and check it out because it really is the way to go. And he promises even in these dark, uncertain times, he will never leave us or forsake us and he will lead us safely to his eternal home. Now, I started with this question, how should we respond spiritually to the coronavirus. And I want to just finish up today by wrestling with that question for a few minutes. 
See, the Bible doesn't explicitly mention the coronavirus. Uh, and so you go, well, what does the Bible have to say about it? Uh, the Bible does talk a lot about plagues. Uh, and sometimes plagues come in the form of natural disasters, but sometimes they come in the form of mystery illnesses and sicknesses. Uh, and often in the Bible, the plagues are called signs. So just like Jesus' miracles were called signs, often plagues are regarded as signs. And, and the way they're signs is they're kind of like a wake-up call. They're kind of like uh, an alert to us that we need to take God seriously, that we need to stop ignoring him or turning our backs on him. So in Egypt, 1,500 years before the coming of Jesus, the nation of Israel, God's people, were slaves to this cruel tyrant, Pharaoh. He abused them. Uh, he treated them so harshly. And there came a point where God said, enough is enough. And God declared, I'm going to rescue my people from the hand of this tyrant, Pharaoh. Uh, and God sent a warning to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh refused to listen to the warning. And so then these plagues started to come from God. Uh, and some of the plagues were like, you know, lice or frogs or flies. Some of the plagues were these mystery sicknesses that saw cattle and even people die. Now, how should Pharaoh have responded as wave after wave of destruction came on his land? How should he have responded? Clearly, he should have repented. Clearly, he should have gone, there is a God who is mightier than I am, and I need to bow the knee before him. Uh, and, and there are many times when it looks like he's going to do it. There are many times when it looks like he's finally going to bow the knee and recognize the power of God and submit. But instead, what he does is he hardens his heart. He becomes more and more defiant, more and more stubborn. So that's 1,500 years before Jesus. But the last book of the Bible also talks about a series of plagues. The book of Revelation speaks about plagues that will come in these last days in which we are living. Uh, and Revelation 16 talks about seven plagues that God will send on our world. And as you read those chapters, uh, Revelation 15 and 16, you kind of think, surely, surely the people of the world, when they see these disasters coming, surely that will be a wake-up call to turn back to God, uh, to humble ourselves before him, to repent and believe in him. But look at Revelation 16 verse 9. See, instead of repenting and believing, they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. They refused to repent. Even though... There are so many signals from God, so many warning signs from God. They refuse to repent. Now, I'm not claiming that the coronavirus 
is one of those seven signs spoken of in Revelation 16. But the coronavirus is a wake-up call, a reminder that I'm not in control, but God is. A reminder that me and every single one of us need to take the opportunity to get right with God. And I want to say right now is the opportunity. Today is the opportunity to get right with God, to humble ourselves before him. If we haven't taken the time to consider the evidence for the Lord Jesus, today is the day to start, to commit to investigating the claims of Jesus. And I want to say, don't put it off. Don't put it off because the danger is the more you ignore God today, the less likely you are to humble yourself in the future. And I just want to plead with you again that following Jesus, bowing the knee before him, acknowledging God as the true God, it is the good life. It is the way to go because in following Jesus is found hope and forgiveness, joy. The, the reassurance that my future is secure, but also the reassurance of his promise that he will lead us safely through this life, safely through the valley of the shadow of death uh, into his eternal home. Uh, and we can entrust our lives in his care. So I'm going to lead us in prayer. Will you pray with me? Oh God Almighty, you created us in your image. You invite each one of us into relationship with you. We are sorry that so often we ignore you. We can be proud, stubborn. We want to live life our way and not yours. And so often we choose that path. We want to thank you for sending Jesus into our world. Thank you for the miraculous signs that he did. Please help each one of us to take the opportunity today and in coming days to consider the evidence for Jesus for ourselves, honestly, sincerely. Please soften our hearts so that as we discover the truth about Jesus, we might respond with humility that we would bow before Jesus as our King and our Saviour, that we would receive the forgiveness, hope, joy and eternal life that he offers. And Father, we pray for our community and for our world in these days. Uh, we pray that you'll soften the hearts of many, many people so that even this global virus might be an opportunity for many to draw near to you and find life in your son. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.